So one of the more uh, significant misunderstandings of Christianity is this, that to be a Christian is to live this sort of severe, dour, guilt-ridden, morally uptight, self-righteous, fearful, critical life. Like sometimes Christians can act as if, or Christianity is presented as if, to be a good Christian means you have to be a jerk to everyone. That to be morally serious means you have to have this, this really uptight demeanor about you that, man, if you laugh, you're in danger of sinning. And that's a mistake. That is a complete distortion of Christianity. But here's another distortion that is probably more prominent in our culture today. This is the distortion that says that God exists to make me happy. In some ways, this is a overcorrection of sort of the, the uptight, dour version of Christianity. This says, hey, God is love, God is grace, and so God wants you to be happy. And in many ways, there are nuggets of truth to that, but it twists it. It, it, it takes what sociologists in our day call the moral therapeutic deism of our day, which is this unbiblical belief that God is just sort of up there, distant, and he drops in once in a while to help me solve my problems and give me a shot of happiness, and then he's on his merry way. Look, you, you can be theologically sophisticated, you can know your Bible, and still functionally live this way. We can still live as if God's existence is for my happiness. This stuff, this sort of thing happens when we make the cross first and foremost about us rather than the glory of God and the righteous exaltation of Jesus as king. When we take God's unconditional love and grace and we twist it in such a way that holiness and repentance and dying to self and taking up our cross and following Jesus are secondary or even optional. We can do this when we functionally live as if God's purpose is to support our pursuit of the American dream. As if he exists to just help us write our own story rather than rescuing and redeeming us that we may submit to his purpose, a purpose to put on display his glory, to exalt his son, King Jesus, to, to sovereignly orchestrate a great history of redemption to the, to the renewal of all things and to the praise of his glory and grace as Ephesians 1 tells us. And so this morning we have to be serious about this. Even those of us who have been in church for a long time, even those of us who know the Bible, even those of us who would consider ourselves too theologically sophisticated to fall into such a trap. How often have we lived our lives as if God's purpose is to make us happy? Friends, this is where Psalm 16 steps in to help us. You see, Psalm 16 is a celebration of God. It, it sings of joy in God. It declares the pleasures and blessings of life that God brings to his people, not because God exists to serve us, but because a radically God-oriented life is the path to true joy. So hear me this morning. Yes, God is for your joy and he is for your happiness. Yes, he is a God of love and grace and redemption but those things are found in him. As our lives are oriented, our hearts are centered on him and his glory. And this is where I wanna go this morning. 
I want to allow Psalm 16 to, to shape us, reorient us, correct us, but lead us in the path of joy. And so here's what I want to do. I want to trace the contours of Psalm 16. And David lays out, here are some of the, the, the aspects of living a God-oriented life. This is what it means to be all in with the Lord, to put him at the center. And then how does that lead to our joy? How does that affect our joy in our lives? So let's, let's trace Psalm 16. So if you have a Bible, please open it, whether uh, a paper Bible, physical Bible, or a Bible app. And here's where David begins in verse one. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The first aspect of a God-oriented life is God is your refuge. God is your place of safety and comfort. We don't know exactly what David's asking God to preserve him from. David faced a lot of trials in his life. And a lot of times in the Psalms, he would sort of identify exactly what's going on. We don't know exactly what's going on here, but he's crying out, God, preserve me. Because in you, I take refuge. In you, do I run. A refuge is a place of safety. It's, it's a place of comfort. It's a place of rest. It's a, it's a place strong enough to protect you and care for you when pain and suffering and danger and uncertainty and sin and even death come crashing in. And so here's what verse one causes us to respond. Here's what we need to consider. Who's our refuge? David's refuge was the Lord. Who is ours? Who do we run to when pain and suffering and dangers and uncertainties and sin and death come crashing in? Because they will. Who is your refuge? Where do you go for safety and comfort or rest? Who or what do you believe is strong enough to be your refuge? Because look, we can certainly take refuge in a number of things. We take refuge in people and relationships. We take refuge in money and financial security. We take refuge even in entertainment and pleasure. We will run to sex. We will run to alcohol. We will run to drugs. We'll run to other substances that help us numb. There is a whole litany, a whole buffet of things that we can run to for refuge. But we have to ask ourselves this question, how strong, how strong are those refuges? How secure, how much comfort do they really offer? Will they preserve you like the Lord preserved David? Look, people are gonna fail. Money, finances come crumbling down. Pleasures fade. Look, numbing our pain only wrecks us physically and emotionally and spiritually. Look, running for refuge in anything else is going to leave you insecure, unsettled, unconfident, and it's going to give you a shallow and shoddy joy at best. And so friends, consider this. You are going to suffer. You cannot escape it. You are going to suffer. There are going to be uncertainties in your life. There are going to be dangers in your life. There are going to be things in your life that come crashing in that are threatening to you. And so much of our life in God, whether it's oriented to God or oriented to something else, sort of breaks on this issue. When the suffering comes, are we gonna go to the Lord for our refuge or are we gonna run to something else? 
A God-oriented life runs to the Lord for refuge in the midst of this world full of suffering and sin and uncertainty. And so Psalm 16 points us to running to the Lord for refuge. May we run to him. The second thing David highlights here is allegiance. In verse two, he writes, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And so David is acknowledging the Lord, not in some sort of abstract way. Hey, the big man upstairs. Hey, there's, there's God up there. I, I sort of acknowledge that God is there and that's cool. No, he's saying, you're my Lord. I, I, my allegiance, my heart belongs to you. There's a personal relationship. There's a, a personal submission that David has to the Lord. You are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. David had an allegiance that belonged to the Lord. He was submitted to the God's authority and kingship. All that David had came under the authority of the Lord. And this is how far that went. David could even say, I have no good apart from you. You see, David, if you're familiar with David, he was a king. And if you're a king, here's what you have. Lots of money, lots of wealth. You have servants. We also recognize and know that David had lots of wives and concubines. David was a military genius and a warrior that like, the world has never seen. And so David was successful. David was handsome. He was popular. David had all of the things that you and I chase after in life and think that we want. And yet here's what David said. I have no good apart from the Lord. Like all of those things are great, but apart from the Lord, they mean nothing. Take all of that away and I have the Lord, then I have good. But if you take away the Lord and I have everything else, I have no good. And so David recognized only the Lord made life worth living. Only the Lord gave meaning and purpose. And so David gave his life in service and submission to the Lord above all things. And then in verse four, we also see David's allegiance to the Lord. He's not even gonna entertain any false gods. Verse four, he writes, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Uh, goodness follows the one whose allegiance belongs to the Lord, but, but sorrows are gonna follow those who chase after other gods. Look, no matter how much success that you gain chasing after other gods, no matter how much success and pleasure you gain by putting your allegiance somewhere else, ultimately that path is sorrow. And so David wouldn't even entertain a false God. He wouldn't even participate in the rituals of false religion. This is a, the reference to pouring out drink offerings of blood. He's not even going to name the false gods. They're not even going to cross my lips. They're so worthless. And so here's the question for us. Who has your allegiance? Who has your ultimate allegiance? And look, this is a tough one. This is a tough one because this one cuts right to the heart of what has our hearts. And I want you to lock in. If you, if you miss me the rest of this sermon, I want you to lock in here. I'm trying to do this at the beginning. <laughs> Who or what can you say, I have no good apart from you? I have no good apart from you. Who's the you that you fill in the blank there? Is it a spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your job? Money? Political freedoms? 
if all of that was tragically taken away from you, would there still be good because you have the Lord? Well, as I said, this is tough and this is sobering because blessings, especially when we're talking about relationships, blessings are important and they matter deeply. Having your allegiance fully to the Lord doesn't mean that all this other stuff you're indifferent to and don't have emotional connection to. No, we care about these things deeply because they're gifts to us from the Lord. We're not indifferent. If these things are taken from us, we mourn and we feel it. However, they cannot be our ultimate good because if they're our ultimate good, our ultimate good, this means they're our God. Have you made your spouse your God? Have you made your kids your God? Have you made money and wealth and security your God? Have you made your hobbies your God? Have you made politics and political parties and political freedoms and the political situation of our world your God? Look, some people outright follow false religions, but some of us make gods out of these things and it does incredible damage. Look, when, when people are your God, do you realize that psychology and counseling has a term for that? It's called codependency. And it does damage emotionally. It, it creates unhealthy relationships and unhealthy emotional entanglement. It creates fear and uncertainty in relationships. When your finances are your God, you become slave to your wealth and the security of your wealth. You become slave to your work because you have to work more to get more to keep more. When politics and political freedom are your God, you put loyalty to political party over God. You'll be more concerned about political causes than the Great Commission. Look, none of these things are the path to joy at least not true, lasting, deep, life-giving joy. It's only allegiance to the Lord and his word and his glory and his purpose for your life. It's only when he is your ultimate good that you're set free from false gods, set free from unhealthy relational dynamics, set free from slavery to wealth and comfort and set free from the idol of politics. This is what allegiance to the, this is what a God-oriented heart does. And so refuge, allegiance. Then in verse three, David puts his focus on relationships. God-oriented life also defines our relationship. David declares, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The saints, the ones who follow the Lord and belong to him. These are the ones that David takes joy in. He, he delights in them because God delights in them. Look, David takes great joy when he sees the people who love God and serve God and worship God. He's like, those people bring me joy. A God-oriented life means we delight in God's people. We love God's people. We love the church. We love being with God's people. We love hanging out. We love serving together and worshiping together and discipling one another and just being in each other's presence. Uh, hopefully, if, if anything, this season of COVID has taught us how much we need each other and how much being in each other's presence matters. Do you take joy in God's people? There is a joy that comes when we spend time and delight in those who delight in God. Look, it isn't our ethnicity that we delight in. It isn't our socioeconomic status. It isn't our education. It isn't our political parties that cause us to delight in one another. No, it's the Lord. How much a greater thing to delight in one another than anything else. 
I love that you love the Lord. I delight in the Lord's work in your heart. I have joy in my heart when I see God bring you joy and bless you and change you and renew you. There is great joy when we delight in one another because of the Lord. Now look, I've been a Christian long enough to know (laughs) there are a lot of Christians (laughs) it's hard to delight in. And look, we've we've all been that type of Christian. We've all been in that place where people, it was hard for people to delight in us. Uh, how many days do we, we make it tough for our spouses or our gospel communities or our friends to delight in us? This is why we need grace. This is why we need forgiveness. This is why we need love. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. That it is messy, that it is hard, that it is difficult doesn't change the fact that if a God-oriented life means we delight in the church. We delight in God's people. And so here's the question for us. What attracts you most about someone? What draws you into friendship? What draws you into deep friendship? I think of the friendships that I have, the friendships that are most precious to me. And I think of what has built those friendships that is going to school with my friends or playing sports with them and a shared love of sports, a shared love of music, a shared love of movies, talking about martial arts and kung fu movies is one of my favorite things to do with Jake White. But look, what draws me most deeply into relationships with guys like Jake and others is a shared love of the Lord. Like I have friendships that have all of those things, but the Lord isn't present. And so the depth of that relationship, the joy in that relationship isn't as deep. What is it that attracts you to friendship and relationship? Is it the Lord? That is what it means to have a God-oriented life. Do you delight in that friendship because of a shared love for God? And as you delight in God together, you delight in one another. Friendships are so, so important. They shape us. Are your friendships shaping you into a God-oriented person or something else? Now, let me pause here for an important caveat. This does not mean we don't love and spend time with those who do not know Christ. No, you should have good relationships with those who do not know Jesus. You should love them. You should be in relationship with them. But here's what it means. Your joy is incomplete. It means there's always going to be something lacking, something missing, that the joy that could be in that relationship because of the Lord is missing. And I hope that lack, that gap, causes you all the more to want them to know Christ. Do you love your non-Christian friends enough? Do you want their joy to be greater and complete? Do you want to go deeper into that relationship? Do you want them to know the Lord? So refuge, allegiance, relationships, and then verses five and six, dependence. A God-oriented life is a God-dependent life. In verses five and six, David writes this, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is my portion and my cup. This is images of food and of drink, eating and drinking. You need food to survive. You need food for strength. David says, the Lord is my food. He's my substance. He he strengthens me. He fills me. He's my provision. He's the one I depend upon. And David also says, the Lord holds his lot. 
And so in the ancient world, casting lots was a means to make a decision. So you would take a bunch of sticks, break one, make it shorter, hold it in the hand, everybody drew a stick, and whoever got the short stick had to do whatever was being decided. And so this was this idea, hey, we're going to leave it up to fate or to chance or a god. We're going to have some, some power outside of our control. And, and so David's recognizing there's an aspect of my life I don't control. There are circumstances in my life I don't control. But God does. It's not blind fate. It's not random natural forces. God holds my lot. God is the one I depend upon. God is the one that I trust. God is the one that I rest in. Look, your circumstances are things you can't control. As much as we try and as much as we do have some level of control, but there are so many things outside our control. But in the midst of that, how do you respond? Do you run and try to grab control for things that you cannot control? Do you sort of curse the circumstances that you cannot control? Or is God your lot? Do you depend upon the Lord? Rest in him. Trust that he has you. David is expressing complete dependence upon the Lord. He is the food and drink that sustain. He is the power that directs my life. He holds my days in his hand. I depend upon him. I trust him. And then David rejoices in God's care for him. This is the direction my life is headed. A God-oriented life has a trajectory. No matter how painful and how much struggle and suffering come, there's still a trajectory here. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, David said. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Here, David is drawing on the imagery of Israel entering into the promised land. When Israel entered into the promised land, God divided up portions of the land for the tribes. And so the boundary lines fell in certain places for certain tribes. And so David is saying, hey, Lord, the boundary lines, the, the inheritance that you've given me, the inheritance that I'm going to have, oh, it's pleasant. I know the trajectory of my life. You have my lot. Lord, you're my provision. You're my cup. You're my food. And where I'm headed is a good place. So again, the question for us, who are you depending on? Who or what is your provision? Your own strength, your own success, your intelligence and your ability, your own power? Who or what is your inheritance? What is the trajectory of your life leading to? What is, what, what, where are you going to end up? What is the hope for you in the future? Are you taking everything upon yourself? Are, are you trusting in something that could crumble? Earlier this week, Mindy and I were talking to our financial advisor, who's one of our good friends, and talking about our retirement fund and kind of looking at where it was going and saying, hey, it's headed in a good trajectory. But all the time in that conversation, hear what was hanging just underneath the good news. At any point in time, the stock market could crash and this could all just go away. Like we were sitting there rejoicing, hey, our, our retirement looks good. The prospects for retirement look good. That's great. You should work and, and, and be a steward for your retirement. But that's not my inheritance. Your, your retirement, your Roth IRA, your 501 K or whatever it is that you have is not your inheritance if you live a God-oriented life. So refuge, allegiance, relationships, dependence, and finally counsel. The God-oriented life is a life directed by the counsel of God. In verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. 
In the night also my heart instructs me. Who counsels you? What counsel do you live by? Well, what is the wisdom? What are the principles? What are the ideas? What is the sense of truth, the right and wrong that guides your life, that guides your decisions? When it comes to counsel about your marriage or your parenting or your job or finances or friendships or politics or resolving conflict or any other matter of life, what is the counsel you listen to? What is the counsel that directs you and shapes you? David blessed the Lord because the Lord gives him counsel. The Lord is not playing coy with you. The Lord is not just dropping a few nuggets here and there and saying, hey, figure this out as you go along. No, the Lord counsels his people. He gives wonderful counsel, life-giving counsel, true counsel. And David experienced this and he blessed the Lord. He was happy in God. In the night, also my heart instructs me, meaning that David, as he slept at night and he just meditated on the counsel of the Lord, his heart was being formed. It's this wonderful picture of intimacy. Have you ever stayed up late at night and just pondered the meaning of life? and just chewed over just what was going on in your life and your days. Hey, sometimes those nights can be long and stressful and sleepless. But David said, as he meditated on the counsel of the Lord, there was joy. He blessed the Lord for that counsel. And so friends, so many words out there, so much counsel out there. What are you listening to? What's directing you? Is the counsel pointing you to the Lord? Is it shaping your heart to submit to God's word and his truth? Or is it something else? And so through Psalm 16, David has built this picture of a God-oriented life. And then he comes to this climactic statement in verse eight. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken I've lived a God-oriented life, but the Lord is in front of me. I mean, I've kept him before my eyes. I've, I've focused on him. I, I walk with him. He's at my right hand. And because of this, I shall not be shaken. All of these descriptors, all of this life that is oriented around God, here is where it is leading to for David. Confidence. Confident joy. I shall not be shaken. As I said, David lived a tumultuous life, lots of trial. And in the midst of all that pain, all that suffering, all that difficulty, he said, I'm not gonna be shaken. Trials may come, hardship may come, suffering may come, sin may come, death may come, but I will not be shaken. I have confidence in the Lord. This is where a God-oriented life leads you, to confidence in the Lord. And so friends, the more we Take the, go to the Lord as our refuge, the, the more he has your allegiance, the more he defines your relationships, the more you depend upon him and follow his counsel, the more confidence you will have in him. And here's the good news for you. The more confidence you have in the Lord, the more joy. Here's where David goes in verse nine. Therefore, the therefore is pointing back to because I am, because the Lord is before me, because he is at my right hand, because I shall not be shaken, because of, he is in the presence of God and has all this confidence. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Everything in David rejoiced. He had such confidence in the Lord because he knew the Lord was faithful. He knew the Lord's power. He knew the Lord's grace and he rejoices. Confident joy. And he goes on in verses 11. You make you make known to me the path of life. 
God, your, your counsel, your wisdom has led me to life. It's led me to flourishing. It's led me to good things. In your presence, there is the fullness of joy. As I am near you, God, as I am close to you, in your presence, when I'm with you, there's joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He knows if I am near the Lord, that joy will never go away. That joy is never gonna be threatened by trial and hardship and suffering. Even if I'm mourning, there's still joy. And that joy will last for eternity because God is eternal and God is infinite. And so David's confidence was built as his life was oriented around the Lord. And David's confidence stood even in the face of death. His flesh dwelt secure because he knew in verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Look, all around us hangs the fear of death. Death is this great joy stealer. It separates us from things that we take joy in. And David's mindset for him to die was to be removed from the blessings of God. But he knew even in death, he was confident that the Lord would not abandon him to death, that the last word on his life would not be corruption and decay. Even in death, David had confidence. And so the question for you again this morning, do you have this kind of confidence, this kind of joy? Joy even in the midst of suffering and sorrow. Joy even in the face of death. Are the things you find refuge in, give allegiance to, the things that define your relationships, the things you depend upon and give you counsel, are they leading you into confident joy? Are you more faith-filled and hope-filled? Are you a more loving and sacrificial person? Is God big and glorious in your heart because of those things? Friends, I dare say too often we don't have this kind of confidence and we don't have this kind of joy because our hearts are not God-oriented. We trust in other things. We believe the lie of Satan that God is not good. We settle for shallow and shoddy joy and confidence. And friends, this is no way to live. No way to live. Our world is wrecked because of living this way but it's not just no way to live. It's also rebellion. Here's what Psalm 16 also confronts us with, that to live a life oriented around anything else but the Lord is to be in rebellion. And you know why we fear death? You know why we fear death? Because deep down, if we are honest, deep down, we know we've been, we've been rebellious. We know we deserve judgment. We feel the creep of death and its cold grip around us and we hear its whisper, guilty. We fear death because we know on the other end of that is a much deserved judgment. But if we're prideful, we'll try to outrun it. Or we'll try to bury the fear. We'll build a faux confidence and joy and as if we can try to prove God wrong and say, God, look, I don't need you for confidence and joy. But here's what Psalm 16 would say to you, for, for you who would re remain in your rebellion, there's no preservation for you. The sober truth is death is coming, judgment is coming, and all your faux confidence and, and all your, your, your attempts at joy will crumble before the glory of God. But if this humbles you, 
if you recognize in your soul you don't have confidence and you don't have joy and you've been chasing after these false refuges and, and your allegiance belongs to false gods and, and you recognize you depending upon false things, that the counsel you have been listening to has led you away from God, that the relationships you have built have not been about the Lord. If you see all of those things and that humbles you, here's the good news for you this morning. That the good news for you this morning is God has not left you in that state. God does not just condemn you and leave you in that state of of broken confidence and broken joy. No, God has done something incredible. God has actually done something to show you have every reason to put your confidence in him. God, out of love for sinners, sends Christ into this world. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus models Psalm 16 in a beautiful way for us. Because Jesus loves his father and wants to glorify God, Jesus steps into our sinful, broken world and he glorifies God by completing this mission of salvation. God plans this salvation to save sinners and Jesus says, Father, count me in. I will do it. I will lay down my life to show that you are a glorious and good and loving and gracious God. And Jesus, as he walks this earth, loves God and is loyal to God over everything else. He shows that apart from God, we have no good. This is how Jesus lived his life. Jesus completely depended upon God as he carried out his mission, even to the point of death. You see, Jesus, God the Son, God incarnate, drinks a cup for you and I. You see, the provision that Jesus got was God's judgment for you and I. He he drank the cup of God's wrath in our place so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. This Jesus did to glorify his father, but also because he delights in his people. Do you know, if you are in Christ, Jesus delights in you. He came for you. He loves you. He died for you. He laid down his life so that you could delight in God and you could know God. And the glorious truth is that Jesus putting his full confidence in the Lord, submitting even to death, knew that he would be resurrected to life. You see, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, actually isn't about David. In the book of Acts, the apostle Peter, as he's standing on the day of Pentecost, and he's given this great big sermon to thousands of people, and he points out, hey, do you know when King David wrote that Psalm 16, and he talked about, the Lord not abandoning his soul or expanding him to Sheol and not abandoning his body to corruption. Well, guess what? David died and he's still in the ground. His body is decayed. And so David, when he was talking about this, David's hope actually, he wasn't even talking about himself. He was talking about something greater. David wasn't talking about his own resurrection per se. He was talking about the resurrection of Christ. And so as Peter points out, he says, hey, this is actually fulfilled in Christ. When Jesus died in the place of sinners, God raised him from the dead. And he raised him from the dead in glory. And now Jesus is seated seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus experienced joy in the presence of God. Do you know Jesus is the most joyful person in existence? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? When you think of Jesus, do you think of joyful? Jesus is joyful because he experienced the fullness of God's provision for him. He experienced God's rescuing hand from the grip of death. 
And Jesus did not face corruption. And what this means for you and I, if we put our hope in Christ, that is true of us as well. Look, you're, you're going to die. Your body will be buried. And however long you're there, your body will corrupt and it will decay. But God won't abandon you there. God isn't gonna leave your body there. One day your body will be restored to an incorruptible body. One day through Jesus Christ, you will be resurrected to life if you are in Christ. And all the sickness and disease you face in this world, all the pain and the disability that you face in this world will be gone. The good news of the gospel for us, because Christ was resurrected, because God did not abandon Christ to the grave, he does not abandon those who are in Christ. And so in conclusion, let me say this. It is now Jesus who leads you into a path of life. It's now through Christ that you can be in the presence of God. It's now through Jesus you can know joy. Through Jesus, we find refuge. Jesus is our king. Jesus defines our relationships. We depend upon Jesus for our life. We listen to his counsel. And through Christ, we have resurrection power and we have an inheritance. Eternal, incorruptible, being kept in heaven for us, as 1 Peter says. And so friends, do you want confident joy? Do you want to experience a joy that cannot be shaken? Life that cannot be taken from you. True refuge. A dependence that is going to sustain you come what may. This comes only through a God-oriented life. And so First City Church, as we head into this next season, this fall, coming in the end of this year into 2021, I, I don't know what's gonna happen. Look, this, this pandemic may last for a long time. But even if this pandemic goes away, we're still gonna have trials, we're still gonna have struggles, we're still gonna have life to live, right? But friends, First City Church, my desire, my hope, is that our lives individually and our lives as a church would be defined by Psalm 16, that we would be a God-oriented people, that we would be a people who run to refuge, people who, to Christ for refuge, that we would be a people who are fully sold out and our allegiance is given to God, that we'd be those who depend upon God and not our own strength and our own power, that the relationships that we have would be defined by Christ we would love one another because of Christ and then we would love other people that they may know Christ. That the counsel that we follow, the wisdom that we follow in these days to come, so many voices out there, but we would follow the voice of our Lord and that our ultimate hope would be in the resurrection power of God, the resurrection power of Jesus. That come what may, that though we die, even if our bodies die, we have hope because we know we will rise again. What would it mean for our community if this church was defined by Psalm 16? What would it mean for mission in Bellevue, in Papillion, in Plattsmouth, in La Platte, if we were defined by Psalm 16? What would it mean to have the glory of God spread throughout our city and our county and our state? That's what I want to, that's my hope, that's my prayer. 
And so as you reflect on your days, as you reflect on life right now, can we commit? Can we commit to walking as Psalm 16 people?